What's up, you like? Oh, I think you guys are getting sleepy. How many of you are sleepy? Yeah, all right, that happens. It's Wednesday. Nice to see you guys. Do you have a good day? No, that sounds sad. That sounds sad. I'm going to, yeah, no. Okay, all right. It was all right. All right. Nice to see him. Yesterday in our session, we were talking about the way in which, as we look at the Gospel of John, and we're, again, we're moving through it rapidly, but we talked yesterday about the fact that as we start to look at Jesus' life, we see the truth of who he is, and, and what is revealed there is maybe different than what we've heard. Maybe it's different than some of the things that we've seen revealed by followers of Christ over the years, or the rumors we've heard, or the impressions we've had, that when we look at what Jesus was actually like, we see someone who sort of went against the system, who was unconventional, who didn't care about the standards of his day, but actually cared about people. He actually cared about those on the fringes, and those who were hurting, and those who were alone, and he brought life, and he brought hope, and he brought grace, and he brought truth. What's interesting, though, is as we look at the life of Jesus, not only do we understand what's true about him, there is a sort of an, a, an intentional byproduct. The other side of the coin is that as we look at the life of Jesus as revealed in the Gospel of John, we also understand the truth of who we are. As we look at Jesus, we not only learn things about who he is, but we learn things about us as well. And as the video even just articulated pretty well, some of those things are uncomfortable. And I don't know how often you find yourself embarrassed, how often you find yourself in uncomfortable situations, places you wish you could kind of wiggle out of. I've had a lot of those in my life, right? And we don't, we don't look forward to those, right? We don't look forward to circumstances and situations where we feel like we're not at our best, or people see us in our brokenness, right? I remember, like, my most embarrassing moment, for instance. How many, anybody here uh, marching band nerds? We got marching band nerds here? Yeah. All right. Power to the marching band nerds. I was, uh, I was in marching band all four years of high school. I love music. We've already talked about that. But I was a drummer, so I played on the drum line in my school. I grew up in Arizona. And uh, as a freshman in my school, they didn't let us play. Uh, we didn't get to play the bass drum or the snare drum or the toms or any of that. We had to play cymbals as a freshman. So when I signed up for marching band, I get a pair of crash cymbals. And if you know anything about crash cymbals, uh, there's two different ways to play those. You have basically have these big metal cymbals. Sometimes they're made out of brass, but a lot of times they're made out of other things. They have a hole drilled in the middle. They put a leather strap through the center of the, of the cymbal, and then you tie it in a knot on the inside. You hold onto the leather strap, and you can play crash cymbals in a marching band one of two ways. You can either crash them together, which is why they're called that, and that's, uh, that's the normal way. Like you've heard the Star Spangled Banner. That's the way that works, like that. But the other way, you sometimes play cymbals in a marching band, whether you knew this or not, is you sometimes play them like a hi-hat, which is when you turn them on top and on bottom, and they end up kind of doing what the hi-hat over there does. You hold them together like this, and uh, then you kind of have to, you have to turn around so the snare drummers can play the snare drum and the hi-hat cymbal. But in order to do that in a marching band, that means the cymbal players have to learn their routines completely in reverse. So while the rest of the band is facing the stands, the cymbal players, if they're playing like a hi-hat, you have to turn and, and do everything backwards, right? So uh, my freshman year, I learned all the routines. I actually really love marching band. I still love marching band. But the whole season, uh, you know, we played all the football games and all that stuff, pep rallies, but then everything's working towards Arizona State University Band Adjudication Day, right? This is like the big band festival when all the bands from the whole state come to ASU. They do, they have the opportunity to play three songs in front of like international judges to be judged and scored, and you're hoping to get the best score, right? They score on a, uh, you can get a C, a B, an A, which makes sense, or you can get a one, which is like the best possible score for your marching band. 
And uh, so we'd been practicing all season. I remember, like it was yesterday, we're standing on the sidelines at Arizona State University, uh, their stadium, thousands of people in the stands. We're standing on the sidelines at parade rest. We're getting ready to perform the songs we've been working all season. And as I'm standing there, uh, the unimaginable happens. While we're standing there at parade rest, we get the indication that we got a two-minute warning, and then we're going to take the field, right? So we're waiting to take the field, and all of a sudden, the knot on my right-hand symbol comes untied, right? It just comes loose. Well, when that happens, the symbol's so heavy that it slides off the strap. So I'm standing on the sidelines, and the symbol drops to the ground and, of course, makes like a terrible noise. So I got upperclassmen, juniors and seniors behind me who immediately are like, you stupid bleepity 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 freshman, you better pick that stupid bleepity symbol up, you dummy. You're going to ruin all, you know, so I'm like kind of panicked because we're about to take the field, and my symbol just came untied, and I got mean upperclassmen yelling at me, and I'm just a squirrely freshman, whatever. So I lean down real quick to get the symbol, and when I do, I hear a noise that's worse than the symbol crash. The noise I hear is the sound of my pants ripping. And when I say my pants are ripping, I'm wearing black, almost skin-tight polyester band pants, right? They, uh, when I say that I hear my pants rip, they don't just like tear a little. My pants rip from the bottom of my zipper all the way to my back belt loop, right? So essentially what I've got are two separate legs attached by a zipper, right? I'm wearing whitey tidy Hanes underwear underneath, and as I lean back up with the symbol, I can hear the upperclassmen, they're like, bro, <laughs> we can see your drawers, you know? And I'm like, what? And then I feel the breeze. My, you know, it's, uh, so I retie the symbol, and I'm like, what do I do? Do I run off, like, where do I go? What am I gonna do? Like, here we are, right at that moment, you guys, the drum major blows the whistle for us to take the field. So we march out onto the field in front of 10,000 people, international judges. I got my cymbals retied, but I can feel that my underpants are out, and uh, I don't really know what to do. And uh, so then I decide I'm just going to, you know, the show must go on, right? Anybody who's an artist, you know, you don't give up, you don't quit, you just keep going, so I'm just going to go. And then it dawns on me that all three of the songs we're performing for the judges today at ASU are not songs that require a crash cymbal, but they require hi-hat symbol, which means that my first four counts are these. Ready? The drum major blows the whistle, and then it's like, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and then I got to do the whole thing, the whole thing with my butt facing the stands, and uh, it's not my favorite day. It was, my, it was not my favorite day. It was a hard day. It was a sad day. What's even worse than that particular day is that on Monday, we go back to school, and uh, we, get to, we get to band, and the band teacher's like, hey, I got a video recording of our performance, right? And so he puts, back then we had these, uh, these old things called VCRs, and he puts the tape into the VCR, and they put it up on the big screen in front of the marching band, and uh, literally, this is what the judges, there's like judges, and they have microphones, and they're giving you notes. So it sounds like this. The judge goes, flute players, what beautiful pitch you have. Well done. Trumpets. Oh, I love those high knees. I love to see high knees. Well done, trumpets. Cymbal players, nice underpants. I'm like, no! <laughs> right? It took me forever to live that down, right? And, and it's easy to laugh about it now, but at the time, that was like mortifying. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to have our underpants on display, but we don't want our weakness on display. We don't want our brokenness on display. We don't want anybody to have any fuel to mock us or to ridicule us or to make fun of us. Those are cringy moments, right? And so there's a little, there's something slightly problematic about looking at the truth of who Jesus is 
Because as we look at the truth of who Jesus is, one of the intended consequences, and I want you to hear me, I'm not saying unintended consequences. The intended consequences of looking at the truth or seeing the light is that darkness is exposed. By looking at the truth, we have the opportunity to uncover what is false. By looking at the truth or looking at what is good, we can uncover what is bad. And many times what is dark or false or broken or dead is us. And that's hard. I'll be honest, that's why a lot of people avoid reading the Bible. It's why a lot of people have walked away from Jesus entirely because it's too embarrassing to have our underpants out for everybody to see. You know what I'm saying? And so we go, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing, and I'm going to stay away. We're going we're gonna to move tonight through, through John 7, 8, and 9. And just like we did last night, we're moving kind of quick. But there's a couple of key things I want you to see here. In John chapter 7, if you have your Bible, open up there. In John chapter 7, Jesus shows up at the Feast of Booths, which that particular detail is not necessarily important. But it's a big Jewish festival. Lots of Jewish people have gathered. And Jesus begins to teach. And you can read in detail all the things that he's teaching. But here's what I want you to see from a macro level about John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, as Jesus begins to teach, the people are completely divided, right? They are completely divided by him. Literally, as you read John 7, it tells us at the beginning that even Jesus' own family, some of his own family, don't believe in him. They don't believe in what he's doing. They don't believe that he is who he says he is. Some of his own brothers, it says that in John 7. But not only that, there are diverse responses to Jesus. As he's preaching, there are some people who say, this man is truly from God. And there are others who say, this guy is definitely demon-possessed. And there are some who say, the authority should come and arrest him and have him put in jail. And there are others who say, they're not going to come and arrest him because he's likely the Messiah. There are some who say, this guy is amazing that he can teach this way, even though he doesn't have much of an education. And there are other people who say, what he's teaching doesn't make any sense. It's just nonsense, right? So as Jesus is teaching, what I want you to understand in John chapter 7 is that there is a breadth of responses. The same human beings who've had similar lives, who've grown up in similar situations, who've experienced the same things as human beings, can hear the same message in the mouth of Jesus and respond in really diverse ways. And you know what? The reason I wanted to point that out is that the same thing's true in here and the same thing's true in our world. You'd have two people from the same family or two people from the same city who look at Jesus and have completely different responses to him. We don't all respond the same way. But regardless of the different responses, what I want you to see here is that Jesus continues to invite everyone to believe in him. So if you're in John chapter 7, look with me at verse 37. We'll just look at a little bit of his teaching and and the response. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I want you to not mistake or misunderstand that in the teaching of Jesus, there's an invitation for everyone. There's an invitation to those who think he's demon-possessed, and there's an invitation to those who think he should be locked up in prison. There's an invitation to the religious leaders who think he should be silenced or killed. There's also an invitation to anybody who's listening to him, right? Jesus says, anyone who believes can have this living water. Anyone who comes to me will be received. Jesus invites them all to the table, even though they have various responses to him. Look at this in verse 40. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man, right? So the Pharisees have even sent soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. When the Pharisees get there, they go, this guy's got some pretty good things to say, and they don't arrest him. When they go back to their bosses, the Pharisees are like, why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, we actually liked what he said, right? No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees, in verse 47, answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I want you to notice what those Pharisees are doing. What they're saying is, you guys are idiots because you don't agree with us. Have you heard any of us, learned, knowledgeable, religious leaders, are any of us following Jesus? Well, you must be stupid then if you would follow him. They're immediately sort of dividing and separating because of those who would believe in Jesus. This is no different than the world in which we live today. They say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They judge the people who believe in Jesus because those people don't know as much about the, the religion as they do. Jesus isn't coming to encourage more and more knowledge of religion. He's coming to invite people to drink from the well that is his own life, right? He's coming to recognize that he is the bread come down from heaven, and yet that's the very thing that these religious leaders will condemn the crowd for. They'll say, oh, anybody who would follow this Jesus is cursed because they don't know the Bible the way we do. You see the division? You see the brokenness? You see the refusal on the part of some people to see who Jesus is and even to condemn others for believing. Nicodemus, who we talked about before, had gone to him before, he was one of them and said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So even Nicodemus, who, who was coming to believe in Christ, was condemned by his peers. Jesus is preaching in John 7, and the people are divided. 2,000 years later, in California, Arizona, wherever you're from, 2022, Jesus is still being revealed and people are still divided over what he has said and who he is. The truth not only reveals, Jesus not only reveals the truth about who he is, it reveals the truth of who we are. Now we come to John chapter 8 and this is where I want to camp for a few minutes. In John chapter 8, there's a really interesting event that occurs. Read this with me in John 8, 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right? These leaders, these Pharisees and Jewish leaders, they bring this woman that they say they've caught in the act of adultery. Adultery, for what it's worth, is having sex with someone outside of your marriage, right? So they catch this woman. It doesn't tell us how they caught her. It doesn't tell us how they knew she had done that. It doesn't tell us any of the backstory. In fact, we don't learn this woman's name. She's, once again, kind of a non-entity. She's just a vehicle for their trap. This particular text doesn't say anything about this particular woman's situation or why the thing that she's done, she did. It doesn't tell us anything about her. It just says that she is a convenient tool for them to use to try and trap Jesus. So they drag this woman in front of Jesus and they fling, him at her, uh, they fling her at his feet and they say, hey, Moses tells us that we're supposed to kill her because she's an adulterous woman. What do you say? Here's the trap. 
The trap is that if Jesus says, yes, we adhere to the law of Moses, she's got to die, right? Then he'll be in trouble with the Roman authorities who have outlawed execution for Jewish law, right? He doesn't have the power to, to execute her for that. If he doesn't agree with the law of Moses, then these Jewish leaders have the ability to say, you think this guy's so holy, but he defies the law of God. So they put him in a little bit of a vice with this woman who's caught in adultery. And it says here that when they ask him the question, they say, what should we do with this woman? They said this to test in verse 6 that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Remember, he was already teaching sitting down, and they asked him, what should we do with this woman caught in adultery? What should we do with this sinful woman? And Jesus leans down, and he writes on the ground. Now, nobody knows exactly what he wrote, right? Theologians have all kinds of different theories, commentators, pastors. People have theorized a lot. I personally think that when Jesus leaned down and wrote in the dust, he wrote, go Dodgers. That just makes sense to me? I can't say for sure. I don't know. Listen, hey, hold on, hold on. Well, here it is. You guys are demonstrating exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus does something and we're divided, right? That's the way that goes. No, I'm just kidding. No, listen. I'm not saying he wrote God Dodgers. I, I recognize that's stupid. I just said it because it makes me laugh, right? So I don't think he wrote that. I don't know what he wrote, right? Some of the theories are that maybe Jesus wrote, he might have written the law out. He might have just been doodling. He may have written, some people have suggested that he may have written personal things about each of those men who accused the woman. I don't know what he writes. The Bible doesn't tell us, and this is kind of a, a sub-principle, right? So let me just tell you something separate about the Bible. There are lots of things the Bible doesn't tell us, and we can make guesses. You're welcome to make as many guesses as you want. The likelihood is you're probably wrong about your guesses. The reason the Bible doesn't tell us is because we don't need to know in order to understand the truth of who Jesus is. So don't ever get lost in the weeds because of your guesses or someone else's guesses, right? It's not worth wasting the time. If it's not in here, God knows we didn't need to know it, and you're welcome to theorize, but never ever treat your theories or the theories of other people like biblical fact, because that's not in there, right? So you can hypothesize and you can guess, but always sort of caveat it with, here's my best guess, right? My thing about the Dodgers isn't even a guess. It was just a stupid joke. I take it back, right? They say to Jesus, thank you. Someone just forgave me. That was so nice. What a, what a kind person. I'm going to call your parents and tell them I think so, okay? Uh, here's the deal. They come to Jesus and they say this to test him. What should we do with her? Verse 7 of John 8. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting thing Jesus does. Jesus obviously is brilliant, but Jesus looks at these leaders and they're saying, this woman was caught in adultery, what should we do? And they're trying to trap him. And he looks and he says, okay, she's sinful, right? That, that's the deal. You've just told me she's sinful. Well, whichever one of you isn't sinful can throw the first stone, Right? The implication of what he's saying is, if we're going to start killing sinful people, then everybody's going to die, right? There isn't a single person in the circle who is free from sin. They may not have committed adultery, but they've committed some other kind of sin. Now, now for our purposes tonight, let me back up and explain what we're talking about when we talk about sin. Sin is one of those weird kind of religious words that gets used with like religious people and in church, but a lot of times out in the world doesn't get used, and so it can be confusing, right? We don't... You never turn on the news and hear the newscaster say, like, today in downtown L.A., some terrible, terrible sin took place. Like, nobody talks like that except Christians, right? 
And so sometimes definitionally we lose what it means. I can give you an easy definition of sin, but in order to do that, I need to first talk about some of what we saw in the video, which is why we exist. I don't know if you've come to the place in your life where you've ever had that sort of existential moment where you stand in front of the mirror and you go like, what am I doing here? Why do I exist? Why am I alive, right? Well, the Bible answers that question for us. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how old you are, what kind of education, what kind of background, what language you speak, what country you come from. None of that stuff matters. If you're a human being made in the image of God, you were created with a purpose, and that purpose is to know God and to worship him, right? To glorify the God who created you. That's why we exist. That's why your lungs are pumping air right now. That's why your blood is pumping through your veins. You and I are, are built from the ground up to glorify God. And when we're glorifying God, we're doing the thing we were built to do. Sin, here's the definition of sin. Sin is when we use our bodies, which are built for worship, when we use our lives for anything other than their intended purpose, when we use our lives to glorify anything other than God, the Bible calls that sin. Failing to glorify God in our thoughts or in our attitudes, in our actions, right? In the, in the things that we do, in the things that we say, when we fail to glorify God, when we fail to use this life for the thing it was built for, the Bible calls that sin. By that definition, right? So, so for instance, if you think of sin only as like the major crimes, like, you know, whatever, bank robbery and pistol-whipping old women or whatever. Like, those are bad things, right? I, admittedly, right? But that's not, uh, if those are the definitions of sin, if it's like murder and bank robbery, then uh, there's probably only like 10 or 20 of you who've killed people in this room. So uh, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Don't be nervous. I can tell some of you are scared, right? I can hear the fear. There were a couple of people who were like, which ones? Never mind. This is a joke. Stay with me. Sin. Go back to that with me, right? Sin is any thought, word, deed, or attitude that falls short of glorifying God. And in fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that exact thing. All, that's you and me and everybody you know, everybody you respect and everybody you dislike, everybody who's ever lived, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is the intended purpose of, of, of the creation of men and women, right? Anytime we fail to glorify God. In fact, when you think about, uh, sometimes when you think about Satan, here's this little side note also. Sometimes when you think about Satan, people assume that like Satan, his goal is to like to get everybody to get pentagram tattoos and listen to heavy metal and kill chickens or whatever. Can I tell you, uh, our enemy, the devil, does not care about getting you to put on black robes and dance around a fire. What the, what the enemy wants to get you to do is to glorify anything other than God with your life. When you glorify your favorite sports teams, when you glorify your favorite rock bands, when you glorify sex, when you glorify money, when you glorify power, when you glorify fame, when you glorify anything with your life other than God, that is sin and that is the devil's aim. He's trying to draw us away from doing the thing we were built for. Right? So Jesus looks at these people and he says, any of you who are without sin, you can throw the first stone. Now, interestingly, and not coincidentally, there is one person in the circle who could throw the stone. There's one person by that definition in the circle who could throw the stone, and it's Jesus. The Bible tells us real clearly that Jesus lived a perfect life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says this. 1 Peter 2, hold on, my, my Bible computer just freaked out on me. Give me just a second. That's so weird stalled out. I'll just read it to you this way. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here comes my Bible back online. Sorry, 1 Peter 2.21. 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never failed to glorify God in thought, word, deed, or attitude, right? He was sinless. So when Jesus looks at these men in John chapter 8 and he says, any of you who are without sin can throw the first stone, none of them can throw stones. Jesus could throw a stone, and he's choosing not to. But what Jesus is essentially saying is if we're going to start throwing rocks at sinners, everybody better get ready to die, right? Now, here's what I want you to understand about that. This sin that Jesus is pointing out in the lives of these particular people is also true for all of us. There isn't a single person in the room who isn't broken. And the problem with sin, the problem with sin is that not only is it pervasive, not only is everybody on the planet failing to do the thing they were built to do, but the Bible also says that that sin is killing us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says the wages of the consequence of sin is death. And it's not just talking about death where you fall over dead and your heart stops beating. It's talking about spiritual death where you're separated from relationship with God, as it says in John 1, who is light and life, right? Separated from God means to be spiritually dead. The reality is, spiritually speaking, that some of you sitting in the room are spiritually dead even though you're physically alive. The problem with spiritual death is that someday you're going to physically die All of us will physically die, and if we die physically while we're spiritually separated from God, we become fixed in that position for eternity, separated from God forever and ever and ever, right? I remember one time I was, um, I was, I told you guys I'm a big video game guy, and I was, uh, we, we were like, we've always been early adopters on video game consoles and whatever, and so I was, I was like a day one original Wii console guy. I had an original Wii console on the day it came out, the one with the little white... Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I don't know. I'm not sure that's applause worthy, but I appreciate it. Uh, thanks. I, I love you too. So you'll be all right. You'll be okay. Here we go. Okay. I, I didn't even do a heart. I did a circle, which is so ambiguous and weird. Here we go. Circle. Like an orange. I, that's what I have for you. Okay. So here's my story about the Wii. I've been so distracted tonight. It's so weird. Uh, I got a brand new Wii. I lived here at Hume Lake, actually. We lived in a house over there by the pond, and uh, I remember coming home from work one day, and I was excited to play with my brand new Wii, like tennis or boxing or whatever. It was one of those day one games, and I come home, and I can't find the Wii controller, and I'm looking all over the house, and I can't figure out where it is, and I really want to play, and they're brand new. Like, I really, I'm kind of frustrated. I can't find it, and so I asked my son, Hank, who was just a little guy at the time. He's like, you know, three or whatever. I said, Hank, you know where the Wii controller is? And he was over in the kitchen. He goes, yeah, I have it. And I was like, what? why do you have it in there? And I go into the kitchen, and he's sitting at the kitchen table, and he's got a thing of yogurt, and he's using my Wii controller, and he's dipping my Wii controller into the yogurt, and then he's eating the yogurt off the Wii controller. And so I was like, ah! you know, like silent scream except with noise. And uh, I took it away from him. And now here's the thing, like, you, Can you eat yogurt with a Wii controller? You certainly can. You can. You can. But let me tell you something about that. The problem with eating yogurt with a Wii controller is, number one, you are using that piece of technology for far less than it was created for, right? You are using it for a diminished purpose. You are using it for something for far less than it was built. But not only that, if you continue to use that piece of technology to consume yogurt, you will eventually destroy the piece of technology. It cannot withstand continued use in that environment and survive. This is the same thing about us and sin. Can you use your life to glorify things other than God? You absolutely can. 
Can you use your life to glorify yourself or to glorify this world or to glorify pleasure or money or fame or whatever? Yes, 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 you can do all of that. But if you do, number one, you're using your life for far less than it was created. You're using it for something that is so diminished. And if you continue over time to use your life in that way, you will destroy it. It's not what it's built for and it ruins you. So Jesus looks at these men who brought this woman forward, and he says, I get that she's a sinner, but I think we all know that so is everybody else in the circle. He says, whoever was without sin can throw the first stone, back to John chapter eight. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone. Look at verse eight, it says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus says, hey, Anybody who hasn't sinned can throw the first rock, and one by one, these guys leave. Why? Because they know they're just as sinful, maybe in different categories, but they're just as broken. So verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He does not condemn her but he does encourage her to live in alignment with her created purpose. That's the loving thing for him to do. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't give her a lecture or a speech. What he says to her is, hey, there's a better way for you to live. I created you for more than this. So as you go, maybe change what you do. And that's not him shaming her. That's not him embarrassing her. That's not him pulling out all her dirty laundry to be exposed to the people that are standing around. It's him showing love to her to say, you were built for so much more than this. You were built for so much more than this. Go and don't, don't sin anymore. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is the light of the world. Remember, we talked about this before, that Jesus exposes not only the truth of himself, but the truth of who we are as well, it says in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says to look at me is not only to understand the truth of who I am, who God is, but it's to understand the truth of who you are too. And when that light switches on, it can be a little bit of embarrassing at first because of the contrast. But he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't condemn us. He invites us to live in alignment with our intended purpose. So the question for us tonight is this. The question for us is, just like it is for the people in John 7 and 8, what will you do about Jesus? What will you do about your own brokenness? When we come to John chapter 9, and I don't want to rush ahead too much, but when we come to John chapter 9, we see Jesus heal a man who was born blind, a guy who has never seen a day in his life. He's never seen anything. Jesus comes upon this man and he heals him. Uh, there's a sequence of things. You can read this, but he heals him. And when he heals him, once again, he heals this guy on the Sabbath, which makes all the Jewish leaders mad. They're more mad about the fact that he broke the Sabbath rule than they are excited that a blind guy who's never seen anything all of a sudden can like go swim in the lake, right? They don't care about the miracle, they care about their own law, and they're so mad that they immediately start referring to, to Jesus as a sinner. They're like, the person who healed you, because he did it on the Sabbath, he has to be a wicked person. So they call this formerly blind guy in, look at John 9, 24. But the second time they called the man who had been born blind in, and they said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man who healed you is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
Right? Though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you were his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Once again, I want you to hear the rejection on the part of the religious leaders. Here's a man who was blind, and they're saying to him, tell us that the guy who healed you is a wicked man. And he's like, I don't know anything about him. What I know is that I was blind, and now I see. What I know is that that guy must be connected with God because nobody's ever heard of this before. And instead of these leaders reveling in the movement of God, in the fact that Jesus has done the miraculous in front of them, they're so desperate to stay just like they are. They don't want to admit that they might not know everything. They don't want to admit that someone might have power they don't have. They don't want to admit that they might not have all the answers. They don't have it all figured out. They don't want to relinquish their position. And so they reject the blind man and they reject Jesus. Jesus goes on and he, he talks to the blind man again. But at the very end of this chapter, in John chapter 9, there's an interesting thing that happens. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, verse 35, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember, he'd never seen Jesus. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the formerly blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Think about what Jesus says there. He says, when, when I show up on the scene, remember what he said to Pilate? When I show up on the scene, I came here to be a witness to the truth. And the reality is what he says here in John 9 is that when the truth is revealed, those who think they have the truth will be exposed as people who are believing a lie. The people who think they see will be proven to be blind. But the people who can admit they're blind will be transformed. The people who can admit they're broken will be transformed. He says, for judgment I came to this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are you calling us blind? You're saying we're blind? I'll tell you what, we're religious leaders. We're big deal around here. Like people respect us. We could get you in a lot of trouble. Are you talking to us? Are you calling us blind? And Jesus' response is not angry. It's not elevated. Listen to what he says in verse 41. Jesus said to them, I, I, when I hear this in my mind, I almost hear it with a crack in Jesus' voice because of the grief he feels. Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus looks at them and he said, if you could just admit that you're broken, if you could just admit that you don't get it all right, if you could just admit that there are things you don't understand, that, th that you've made mistakes, that you're flawed, that you need someone to rescue you, I'm here and I could rescue you. Anyone who believes in me, he said, would have living water. I'm the light of the world, right? He who believes in me will have everlasting life. If you could admit that you're broken, you wouldn't be broken anymore because by believing in me, I would make you whole. But the fact that you insist that you're just fine the way you are means you stay broken. 
means you stay blind. It's interesting, all four of the gospel writers at one point or another refer to the, the preaching of Jesus. And when they summarize his message, they do it like this. In Matthew 4, 17, here's one summary. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And his message, it's really simple. His message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a weird word too. It's like a churchy word, so it might throw you off a little bit. But here, repent just means uh, to, to, to go the opposite direction. Repent just means go the other way, right? So when Jesus says repent, he, what he's saying is you were going this way, go this way because you could be living in the kingdom of God. You were going this way and you were living in the kingdom of self or you were living in the kingdom of the Pharisees or you're living in the kingdom of pleasure or money or pride or fame or whatever. You were going this way and you were dying. But the kingdom of God is available, so just turn around and go the other way. That's the message of Jesus, summarized by the gospel writers. Go the other way. But you know what it takes in order to go the other way? You have to admit you're broken. You have to admit you have a problem. You have to admit that you need somebody to rescue you and save you. In order to not be blind anymore, we have to admit that we're blind. You get that? And as long as we insist that we can see, as long as we insist that we know the truth, that we've got it all figured out, that we don't need anyone's help, as long as we insist upon that, we stay blind. The Jewish leaders look at Jesus and they're like, how dare you call us blind? And he goes, I wish you would recognize that you are because then you wouldn't be anymore. Hume Lake 2022, this is a key moment for us as we're walking through these messages. This is a key moment for us because the reality is everybody in the room is human. Everybody in the room fails to glorify God in thought, word, deed, or attitude, including me, including all the leaders, including everybody you know. (laughs) We're all broken. But Jesus came that we could be healed. We all are spiritually blind, but we can have sight if we'll just admit it, if we'll just turn from our own way and turn to Christ. My friend Eric, some of you I think have heard this story before. My friend Eric used to live at Hume Lake, and he planned a surprise trip to Disneyland. Uh, We were all living here, and he planned a... uh, a surprise trip to Disneyland that he didn't tell his kids about. He planned it, and, and then he woke him up early on a Saturday morning. They were living in a house kind of over that way. He woke him up early in the morning, and he's like, hey, I need you guys to get up out of bed, get your clothes on, put some stuff in a backpack. We're going to go on an adventure today, right? And uh, his kids were like, it's early. It's still dark out. It's Saturday. We don't want to go on an adventure, right? Now, something you might not know is that when you live at Hume Lake, even if you want to get groceries, you want to go to the doctor, you want to go see a movie, you got to drive an hour and a half to Fresno. That's the closest city. So everything's a long drive. So his kids are like, we don't want to go on an adventure. We, it's Saturday. We just want to sleep in. We don't want to go anywhere. And he's like, no, you got to get up, get your backpack, get your clothes on. We're going to go on an adventure. It's going to be amazing. You, don't even, you can't even imagine how cool it's going to be. And they're like, we don't want to go anywhere. And then they're like, wait, are we going to McDonald's? And he's like, no, we're not going to McDonald's. I'm like, we never get to go to McDonald's. And he's like, we're not going to McDonald's. I'm like, we really want to go to McDonald's. You never take us to McDonald's. And he's like, trust me, you do not want to go to McDonald's. Like, not today. Of all days, we don't have time. There's better things to do. You just have to believe me. Get your backpacks. Get your clothes on. We're going to go on an adventure. Let's go. And they're like, we're not getting up, and we're not going with you unless you promise to take us to McDonald's. And so Eric goes, okay. They get in their minivan. They drive down to Fresno. They go to the McDonald's and the play place that always smells like pee. You know the one, right? (laughs) They go to the McDonald's. They eat those rubbery pancakes. They get back in the minivan and they drive back here. Now, here's the thing. Those kids got exactly what they wanted. They got exactly what they were demanding. They got exactly what they knew was right. 
but they didn't get the better thing their daddy had planned for them. It is possible for us as created beings to be so insistent upon our way and so insistent upon the thing we want or the thing we need or the thing we deserve that we actually miss out on the truth of what God has planned for us. And the first step to experiencing the truth that is revealed in Christ, both about God and about his word and about Jesus and about us, is turning from trusting in your own sight and admitting that you're blind so that Jesus can make you see. Recognizing that you're broken, and so am I. Jesus then heals us when we turn and admit we need help. Don't miss the truth of who we are as revealed in Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I know it's hard. I know, I know this is a hard one because it's, a, uh, it's, not, it's not the common practice in our culture to admit that we're weak or to admit that we've done anything wrong or to admit that we're broken in any way. We sort of want to always put out the impression of strength and the impression of beauty and the impression of perfection. That's what Instagram and Facebook and TikTok are all about. Here's my best work. And yet it's all a facade. We all know at the core of us that we don't have it figured out, that there are so many things we don't know and so many things that we regret, so many things we've done we wish we could take back, things we've said we wish we could suck back in, God. And I pray that you would stir in the hearts of every person in this room an honest confession about their own brokenness, that rather than looking at you and insisting they can see, that they would recognize that in confessing they're blind, you would give them sight. Help us to recognize that you don't condemn the sinner, but you encourage us and you call us to live the life we were built for, a life of worship and a life of communion with the God who made us and loves us and invites us to know him in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.